1: What do you know? It's already Friday, the end of another wild week. Here we are in Washington, D.C., about 8.30 on Friday morning, December 11. Welcome, everybody. Time here on the Bill Press Pod to look back at the big stories of the week with three of Washington's crack political reporters from The Wall Street Journal, national political reporter Sabrina Siddiqui. Hi, Sabrina. Hi. How are you? Good. And from USA Today, Chief White House Correspondent David Jackson. Hi, David. Hey, Bill. How you doing? From CQ Roll Call, Deputy Editor Jason Dick. Hello, Jason. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, everybody. All right. And since we last talked, Joe Biden continues to appoint leaders of his new administration. But can they all get confirmed? Donald Trump, having lost all of his legal battles in the states, is now asking the Supreme Court to overturn the will of 160 million Americans. Will they even take the case? Congress looks ready to pass a defense bill, but will the president veto it? And with now 3,000 Americans dying of the coronavirus every day, the FDA finally is on the verge of approving the first vaccine. So much to talk about. Let's jump right in. I want to start with the breaking news of the morning. uh, And maybe the most unkindest cut of all for Donald Trump, Time magazine has named (laughs) Joe Biden and Kamala Harris their Person of the Year Donald Trump loses to Joe Biden for the second time this year. Jason Dick, the big question is, will Donald Trump concede?
2: Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, he's got he's raising too much money. Uh, off of I mean, it. will he concede to Time magazine? Oh well, you can see the Time Magazine. No, no, he's remember he's got the he's got the one he's he's got the one with the mirror where he can just like go you know in the clubhouse at Mar-a-Lago and he can just look at it his his own reflection, <laughs> kind of like Jeff Lebowski and the Big Lebowski. No, he he doesn't he uh, you know he had the the fake Time Magazine covers uh you know like mocked up for him years ago, and he actually has, like, has one, a one-time, you know, man of the year thing. So, no, he'll he'll yeah. just sort of do what he always does, which is, like, move on to the next topic. Or, or publish his own magazine <laughs>
1: with, his, with his cover on it. But um, Joe Biden, it's a big week for Joe Biden, not only now, cover of Time magazine. Uh, David, you were up in Wilmington a couple of days okay. ago when he introduced his uh, nominee to be Defense Secretary, General Lloyd Austin. Um will
3: Austin get confirmed? Oh, yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about it. I know there are are some Democrats who have expressed uh, disappointment because Austin is a military guy, and they don't think that a military guy should be running the Pentagon. And he needs a a waiver. Right. And he needs a waiver. A waiver that has to be approved by both the House and the Senate. So some House Democrats have weighed in with their misgivings. But I I think that those are going to go away. I just can't imagine... Him, the, the first African American nominee to head the Pentagon, being rejected by either party, frankly. So that's uh, I think it's a lot. I think it's a little bit of noise that's going to go away.
1: Uh, seemed like a long shot. How did he get the nod? Uh, did he and Biden go back?
3: He and Biden do go back. You, know, you remember when Biden was. Uh, was troubleshooting some issues in Iraq and some of the war zones in the Middle East. And uh, Lloyd Austin was along for those trips. And I remember hearing about Biden and Austin bonding and Biden feeling like he was one of his allies in the Pentagon. So I wasn't too surprised. It, to me, I think the reason he's got the job is because of Biden. He's, I think he's really driving this process. And he wanted uh, he wanted Austin as his defense secretary, despite the fact that he'll need a waiver, and despite the criticism, it was just, it was it was basically his idea, and he pushed it through.
1: Well, Sabrina, speaking of bonding, uh, when you and I were often in the White House press briefing room under President Obama, if you walked in the White House, you might have run into Ron Klain or Dennis McDonough or Susan Rice or Tom Vilsack or Tony Blinken. It looks like if you walk in the Biden White House, you may run into Ron Klain and Dennis McDonough and Susan Rice and Tom Vilsack and Tony Blinken. Um, this Obama three we're seeing, Sabrina.
0: Well, I think that there are definitely a number of former Obama administration officials who have been tapped to serve in President-elect Joe Biden's cabinet or his sub and a lot of that just has to do with the fact that those are the people who Joe Biden trusts the most. Mm-hmm. I think mean, when you're someone like Joe Biden and you have been in public office for 40 years, uh, you have had a number of close and trusted advisors over the course of time. Many of those people come from his uh, two terms as vice president. And there are a lot of people who are trying to get in his ear but I think he has those people who he was impressed by and who have really been his confidants. And so in some ways, it's not surprising that a lot of those people were around him when he was vice president and always had the intention of one day seeking or of seeking the presidency once more, we should say, since this was his third go around. Uh, I do think having said that, that there is an, there's growing frustration among progressives who up until now were holding their fire that he has not brought in as many new voices as they would like, or leaders of the progressive movement, they feel like their role in helping him succeed um, is not is is in some ways being taken for granted. And so, I wonder how that frustration impacts the remaining uh, cabinet mm-hmm. positions that he has to fill, and also it, it, how many more Obama administration officials we might see come back into the fore. Or are we maybe going to see some new faces in the coming days and weeks?
1: Yeah. Let's remember, we've got labor and commerce and the attorney general. What else still left, right? Uh, There's some transportation, I guess.
0: Really quickly, Bill, because I meant to say the other big thing is Joe Biden, the centerpiece of his campaign was to uh, restore normalcy, stability and, and bring back in experienced professionals. So I think that's also a lot of why you've seen people who are kind of these old hands, who know mm-hmm. how the government works and who have relationships already in Washington. That doesn't mean everyone's going to be thrilled about them, but in many ways, it, it, it dovetails with the core of his campaign message, which, which was after the instability of Trump and all these people he brought in who had no experience for the roles that they were given we were going to go back to the way things used to work.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Jason, uh, I think as Politico note, uh, note to, so Sabrina mentioned several of the people that are that are there that have been appointed so far. I think as was Politico had a story this morning that notably absent so far are any of the political rivals that you normally find maybe in a president-elect's cabinet. There's no, so far, no Pete Buttigieg, no Eric Garcetti. No Deval Patrick, no Rahm Emanuel, who put out a story about how he was definitely going to be the next transportation secretary. No Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Is this, Jason, do you think maybe deliberately clearing a path for Kamala Harris?
2: Um, it it might be, um, although I you know I I'm dubious that the that the cabinet is 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 some sort of uh, you know direct line to the presidency. Just asked you know like President Castro. Uh, <laughs> um, Good point. And, He's and, not there I, either, of course. Right, right. <laughs> right. Um, but but I think that yeah, and and I think that there's this is a more it's a little more complicated than just freezing out like rivals because. Um, you know, some of the people like Bernie Sanders, like they they cannot afford to lose. You know, very many people from um, from either the House or the Senate. You know, like the, in in the Senate, I mean, it, we we will not know. You know, who's in charge of the Senate uh, until after January fifth, and maybe not for a while after January fifth. So they can't. He can't really say like Bernie. You know, like I need you to run the Labor Department because you know that. That affects the balance of power. And even in the House, where the Democrats have this very small majority, you know, that they're uh, you know, he's tapped Marsha Fudge, you know, to be his HUD secretary, and and Cedric Richmond, you know, for a senior advisory role in, in the White House. And you know, we, we ran the story earlier this week with where Jim Clyburn, arguably, you know, uh, one of the most influential people in Joe Biden's kitchen cabinet, said That's enough. (laughs) Like we, I mean, even though these are safe democratic seats, we still, we wouldn't get their replacements until like April. And we are on a knife's edge on Mm. just getting basic stuff done in the house. Right, uh, certainly,
1: as Sabrina indicated, David, um, the president elect is getting a lot of pressure from all groups uh, you know who want their representatives in key positions in the administration, especially from progressives. He met with a group of civil rights leaders this week. It was an off the record meeting, no reporters present, but somebody recorded um, part of the session and released it where the president elect was at and pushed and pressured by these the civil rights leaders to um, sign some executive orders that would do some big things that they wanted to see done, bypassing Congress. Here, from that secret recording, David, is the president-elect. There's some things that I'm going to be able to do by executive order. I'm not going to hesitate to do it. But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to do what some of the people you were supporting on day one, I'm going to have an executive order to do this. Not within the constitutional authority. I am not going to violate the Constitution. It's our only hope. And the way to deal with it is where I have executive authority. I will use it to undo every single damn thing this guy has done by executive authority. But I'm not going to exercise executive authority where it's questioned. Whoa, David, that's a side of uh, Joe Biden we don't normally see. huh?
3: Right. No, he's right. And I think he's actually telling the truth because they're going to have all they can do to do executive orders to reverse what Trump has done. And I think that's their priority. At least in terms of the environment, in terms of regulation, in terms of the so-called Mexico City situation with regard to assist international assistance to abortion, it's uh, it, that's going to be a full-time job just straightening out all the stuff that Trump did. So he's he's not going to have a lot of time or a lot of lot of distance to do anything else, really, in terms of in terms of executive orders.
1: He also, David, seems to be saying.
3: Uh back off, you know, don't right. don't push me too far here. That's right. And, uh, of course, one of the things is the, the group is they're never really specific about which specific executive order they want Biden to do. So that's one of the problems is a lack of specificity. But on the other hand, I, I, did, I do think Biden will be aggressive on executive orders because he's, he's liable to have a Republican Senate. He's liable to face frustrations in Congress. So it would not shock me for him in the end, to do a lot of a lot of things through executive order, it's just gonna it's just gonna be a while before he gets around to it.
1: Right. So, um, so far from uh, Wilmington, Delaware, the, what's happening on that front? Meanwhile, at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, let's let's tune in. Uh, the president convened a group uh, to talk about progress with the vaccine in the South Court Auditorium over at the old Executive Office Building this week. Uh, And let's listen in and see if there's any new message coming from President Trump. We were rewarded with a victory. Now let's see whether or not somebody has the courage, whether it's a legislator or legislatures, or whether it's a justice of the Supreme Court or a number of justices of the Supreme Court. Let's see if they have the courage to do what everybody in this
0: country knows is right.
1: Sabrina, everybody in the country knows
0: he won. Well, the president is singularly focused on the election, and he has spent all of the last few weeks uh, pushing for some kind of way to reverse the outcome, even though it's clear that will not happen. You know, he's obviously his campaign has pursued now I think we've lost track of just how many, but countless fifty.
1: Losses, 50 losses, they're oh, saying okay, 50.
0: there you go. That have either been dismissed quickly, dismissed by the courts, or withdrawn by his own legal team. And so there's no real path forward. Um, I, you know, I this is you asked if if Trump is finally going to concede. I don't think this is a president who's ever really going to concede. I think he's going to leave the White House because he has to. On January twentieth, and forever hold on to this uh, conspiracy theory that he won the election and live in this false uh, reality, alternate alternate reality where the whole process was rigged and he was he 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 should have been elected to a second term. And this is happening at a time when uh, coronavirus cases are on the rise across the country and millions of people are suffering. There is yet to be a, another relief bill that has uh, reached his desk. And rather than focusing on that, uh, all he has been able to do is re- is rant about the election. But uh, to, to be sure, this is a lot of, this is in many ways the way his presidency has operated, where right. we've, we've, we've woken up to those tweets almost every day for the last four years, where there's some kind of calamity <laughs> happening in mm-hmm. the country or overseas. And he's caught up in some kind of conspiracy theory. And, and so this is probably the one that will dominate uh, until the day that he leaves. But, but it's just important to point out that all of these cases have been rejected by the courts and are right. successful because there's nothing to litigate. Okay, and so
1: having lost all of these cases, some 50 cases in the various state courts that the that, that Trump legal team has challenged, they now go to their ultimate play, which is filed a case now filed before the Supreme Court uh, which seems to be, well, let me just, it, it it's a case filed by the Republican Attorney General of Texas asking the Supreme Court to overturn the election results in Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Asking the Supreme Court to overturn the results of the election decided by 161 million Americans. Uh, Jason, is this so absurd? It, there's no chance the Supreme Court would take it. Uh,
2: I I think that we we're probably going to see the Supreme Court do what they did with the with another one of these Pennsylvania cases that was filed by a Republican up there from the Erie area, Mike Kelly, who sought to invalidate the the vote and allow the legislature to to uh, um, to to pick the electors. they'll, they'll probably summarily just dismiss it um, and 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 try to keep their distance as much as possible. Um, I mean, I I'm with Sabrina. I don't think that this is ever going to end. You know, <laughs> I mean, like yeah. the, the, you know, it, this is yeah. like we'll, we'll be you know uh, up until the day he dies. You know, uh, Donald Trump will be railing about this, and you know, it it, it has almost taken on the, the the sort of form of a of a horror movie, right? And it's sequels where yeah. you think the villain is dead. Uh, and then they come back they spring out of a closet or the a lake or whatever with a you know and and but the problem is the quality keeps going downhill <laughs> and and fewer people tune in uh because it just you you've seen this before but that doesn't mean that it doesn't cause some anxiety yeah and but david the very prim- i don't think there's an attorney on this
1: panel certainly I'm not but the very premise of this case is that texas has a right to challenge the job done in four other states about how they counted their votes right right
3: it's 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 a a non-starter there's there's never been a lawsuit filed i mean the only reason it was filed is because the attorney generals are entitled to go straight to the supreme court on these so-called state versus state disputes but there's no way that one state gets the right to tell another state how to conduct its elections it's it's just out it's frankly outrageous and I wonder if the Supreme Court not going to sanction Paxton for filing this lawsuit because it's just so – it would just open such a Pandora's box if the Supreme Court even agreed to hear this case. I mean, is, is Vermont entitled to sue Texas over its oil production because it's a threat to global warming? I, it's, mm-hmm. the, the ramifications of taking this case would just be massive and – really anti-democratic. So I can't imagine the, the court taking it. You know, my only question is whether the Supreme Court is going to say anything about it. You know, they don't have to say anything. They can just let the lawsuit sit there until it becomes moot. So I, I don't know if they'll actually weigh in on it or not. But if they do, I'm sure they're going to, I'm sure they're going to flush it.
1: Uh, and just and one other Hail Mary pass, I guess, that is being talked about by at least a f- few members of Congress is that we know the Electoral College meets on this coming Monday, right. uh, which will be, let's see, 11, 12, 14, the 14th, the 14th right? right? Right. Uh, and then it goes to the Congress to certify the results on January 6th, I believe, Jason, help yes. me out. Correct. Yep. Yep. It is January 6th. Yeah. And some members of Congress saying, okay, well, we don't care what the electoral college does. We will overturn the electoral college vote on January 6th. That's where we're finally going to win this thing. Uh, is that equally outrageous
2: as this or unlikely as the supreme court case it's fairly un- unlikely i mean you know every time the electoral well not every time but like several times we have seen in recent history um members of congress objecting to the counting of a of a of a state's electoral uh votes i mean this this happened 4 years ago there were some uh, members uh, on on the Democratic side, who are objecting, uh, and and the issue is you can object, but you also need somebody from the other chamber, uh, to, to also to sort of second your objection. So if somebody from the house objects to the counting of Minnesota's votes or whatever, uh, say, then they need to have a Senator, uh, and, and to back them up and vice versa. At that point, the chambers, you know, go back to their own respective chambers, debate it, uh, possibly vote, come back and resolve it. So, I mean, again, the, the, The the issue is that, like, this is not going to – it is not likely to be approved, you know, like the objection of a, a, you know, Paul Gosar, you know, Republican (laughs) from Arizona, objecting to, um, you know, Michigan's votes or even Arizona's votes, that the the Democratic-led House would not likely uh, uphold that. And I have doubts that the Senate, that even – regardless of who is in charge of the Senate that day. And again, we may not know <laughs> depending on, right. uh, on, on how things are. We, we, uh, but you know, it's, it is just this crazy thing. Um, I mean, you know, Mike Pence will be, uh, you know, he'll be presiding over the counting of this. So, you know, maybe Trump is going to start whispering to Mike Pence to, you know, take the electoral votes and, and run away with them or something. I don't know.
1: Uh, And meanwhile, as Sabrina mentioned earlier, um, with so much, uh, so many problems facing the nation, uh, leading those problems being, of course, this runaway coronavirus, uh, Congress just seems to be sitting on its hands and about to leave town without doing anything. We want to get to that when we come back here after a quick break on today's Roundtable with uh, Jason Dick and David Jackson and Sabrina Siddiqui. We'll take a quick break and be right back. And uh, today, uh, as we take our quick break, I want to uh, remind you that these are the. Ah, this is the holiday season. And if you've uh, run out of ideas or looking for a new idea for something very special for someone in your life, uh, someone that you love, uh, someone you, you want to do something very special for, I suggest you couldn't do any better than checking out my wife's website, carolpressscarves.com and taking a look at the beautiful hand-woven scarves that Carol uh, creates here in, at our studio and back of the house every day. They come in either rayon chenille or uh, bamboo. Many different colors and designs. Each one of them is handwoven. Each one of them is a work, uh, work of art. Uh, they are absolutely beautiful. One of a kind. Take a look carolpressscarves.com for yourself or someone you love. And we're back with uh, today's roundtable. Sabrina Siddiqui from Wall Street Journal, David Jackson, USA Today, and Jason Dick from Roll Call. So, Sabrina, um, you mentioned the COVID crisis. So many families are suffering. So many small businesses shuttering. The unemployment benefits have run out. The business um, relief has run out. Uh, Could Congress dare leave town without doing a second stimulus package, and will
0: they? (laughs) Well, they're really letting it go down to the wire, which is something we've become accustomed to with Congress. And uh, the latest is just that there was hope uh, with a bipartisan proposal, uh, a $908 billion relief package, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell rejected that Proposal, even though members of his own caucus helped craft it. And this, of course, comes at a time when about 12 million Americans are poised to lose unemployment benefits absent some kind of legislation. And there are also, of course, people who are going hungry, people who are facing evictions. So it's just a point in time where you have already the backdrop of the pandemic, its impact on the economy, and on The livelihood of Americans. But again, a failure by uh, members of Congress to agree, in part because there has not been a way in which um, there's been no resolution, I should say, to what is a Republican priority, which is legal immunity for businesses. That seems to be the sticking point here. Um, This is, of course, a much more pared back relief package compared to the kind of numbers that Democrats who control the House were initially floating. They wanted it to look more like, something to the tune of two trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, this, of course, is also a bill that would a vehicle to also re- renew funding for the government. So we could also be headed toward a government shutdown, just in time for the holidays. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, the paralysis uh, or dysfunction uh, is unbelievable. And, David, in the meantime, um, there is the defense authorization bill has to be passed as well. Um, And there are parts of that the president doesn't like and said he will veto if they pass it. But it looks like Congress may be poised to pass the defense bill anyhow and take
3: their chances. It would seem so. You know, I think the House passed it with a veto-proof majority. So I think that's right. Republicans are just prepared to override Trump if he insists on vetoing this bill over this Section 230 Internet thing. So um, I, I, I think I think vetoing that bill, the defense bill, which includes a pay raise for our military and a lot of other important things, I do think that would be kind of the last straw for a lot of Republicans in Congress. And it'll just be overridden.
1: Yeah. Jason, that would be the president's first veto override. Right. Uh,
2: if i believe so i i'm uh, um you know again uh, the the cliche time has no meaning i'm i'm searching my, my, my yeah. brain my memory for the last yeah. four years um but you know like there's they've passed so few pieces of legislation to begin with wow. uh that True. that it, it's uh it, it's I don't, I don't recall yeah a. I uh, i mean he has vetoed some things but he has not been overridden right
1: so um georgia uh, a couple of you have mentioned that we won't really know uh, what the chances are, Joe Biden's chances are, of getting anything cr- through Congress until we see what happens in Georgia on uh, January 5, although the voting starts Monday, uh, early voting starts Monday, December 14, uh, in Georgia. There was a debate this week. Uh, David Perdue did not show up for his debate, uh, as he had said he would not, with John Ossoff. Kelly Loeffler did show up with her de- for her debate with Raphael Warnock. Uh, And she had a certain message that she wanted to get across, uh, which she got across, she got across, she got across, she got across. Here is a little montage of Kelly Loeffler at the debate.
2: The American Dream. Chuck Schumer of socialism. The American Dream. Radical liberal Raphael Warnock. The American Dream. Radical liberal Raphael Warnock. Radical liberal Raphael Warnock. Chuck Schumer's
0: radical agenda: defund the police, Marxism, socialism, and Marxism.
1: You got it, Sabrina. Always <laughs> <laughs> say something
0: about socialism.
1: Or <laughs> radical, radical.
0: Radical. They're
1: the radical left. <laughs> radical. Left. Uh, that's what, that, uh, Sabrina, I guess that's what they assume is the uh, uh, the winning message for a pastor who's at six, been 16 years ahead of Martin Luther King Jr.'s church in Atlanta.
0: Well, that is very much uh, out of the playbook that Republicans used in the 2020 election. And they do believe that they had some success in down ballot races although you know a lot there's been a lot made of whether or not calls to defund the police or efforts uh, by republicans to portray democrats as socialists were successful and in fact scared voters away and I, there's just not enough data frankly yet to, to know exactly why uh, down-ballot Democrats fared more poorly than Joe Biden. Um, so But that is clearly what Republicans think is going to be a winning tactic. I think it was also notable, though, that um, one thing that Loeffler did was she repeatedly uh, dodged questions about Trump's election claims. And she did not explicitly say that she thought the election was rigged, but she embraced the idea that there were quote unquote issues and Mm -hmm. back the president's right to pursue legal avenues to try and challenge the outcome of the election. And, you know, that really, I think just is a reflection of where the party is right now, where they're very much still beholden to the message and the agenda that is set by Trump. And, you know, again, how that will the, the, there's a real question though, and I and I've heard this concern from some Republicans. The more that they embrace this idea that there was something fraudulent in the election, yeah. the more there are some concerns among some Republicans that that could have the effect of suppressing turnout among Republican voters. Yeah, well, Jason, now, if, you're, you're telling them to go vote in a runoff right. election at the same time that you're telling them that they can't trust the process.
1: Right, but Jason, in fact, some Republicans, leading Republicans, members of Donald Trump's team
2: have held rallies down there telling people to stay home that's right I mean and and right to Sabrina's point um, you know th- there are people who they've been sort of distanced from the Trump legal yeah. team like Sidney Powell and and Lynn yeah. wood but they you know at one point Lynn Wood at a rally uh, about a week and a half ago said you know told people don't vote unless they right. they, they uh, completely overhaul the, the voting system in the next week or so you know to get rid of the voting machines these you know this is the new you know boogeyman the the voting machines that apparently the CIA is operating out of in Germany Germany or something. And, you know, and, and, you know, in a, in a state as closely divided as Georgia, uh, you know, turnout election, like after the first of the year, you know, you need every single person who you who could possibly muster to vote to, to make a difference. And so if you like a few people just say like, well, it's all fixed anyway, it's all rigged. I'm going to stay home. That could be the difference between like democratic control and Republican control of the Senate. Yeah. And by the way, for the record, uh, Loeffler and Purdue have both uh, supported
1: this Texas lawsuit in front of the Supreme Court, which would, again, overthrow the results uh, in Georgia. And David Jackson, Joe Biden is going down there on Tuesday, I believe, next week. You're a man from the South. The idea that a Democratic president elect could go to Georgia and make a difference would have been unheard of uh, maybe a few years ago. Make a difference today, do you think?
3: Uh, I, I think it could. It's a brand new day, you know. Georgia was a pet project of none other than Barack Obama. He, I remember him talking to me about his his idea that uh, that Georgia was fertile Democratic territory because of Atlanta hmm. and, and the emerging Democratic uh, trends in the suburbs. And he always felt like you know a lot of people used to say Texas should turn blue. Remember that? You know, and, mm-hmm. and talk. About a lot, but Obama's theory always was that Georgia would be the first state to go purple and then blue, and that I think this election proved it. So it's not surprising that Biden would go down there because, and I think he can do an awfully lot of good in certain certain parts of the state. Now, there's also talk that Trump is going to make at least one more visit there before January mm. as well,
1: right? Uh, President Obama, I thought, might be going back in person. He did do a video in Georgia, right. but uh, he is now safely in Hawaii and unlikely. It
3: mean, wouldn't surprise me if he showed up. I mean, the election's not till really? January 5th. But like I say, it's, it's, a, it's a project he's been interested in for quite some time. So it, it really wouldn't surprise me to see him show up in person.
1: Right. Now, one question that's come out of uh, let's uh, l- we all know that Joe Biden is the president-elect, will be sworn in. Uh, it has, and that Donald Trump will fight it until the end and go down to his grave saying that Joe Biden was an illegitimate president, but it, among some Republicans, it does raise the question of where does the Republican Party go from here? Uh, is it forever the Trump Party, or can we get back to the old Republican Party that we used to know? That's certainly what the Lincoln Project and people like Bill Kristol would like to see. I'd like to get all of each of your thoughts on where the Republican Party goes from here, post-Trump. And I want to start. um, my, My last podcast was a conversation with Ron Brownstein, a uh, great political commentator uh, from uh, on CNN and also the Atlantic. And I asked Ron about the Republican Party. Uh, hear his comments.
3: This is the same party that found nothing to complain about when he openly tried to extort the government of Ukraine uh, to manufacture dirt on his opponent and didn't really raise a peep, or still to this point, and not raise a peep as, as he's become the first president ever to try to tilt the census to the advantage of one party or weaponize the Postal Service. You know, we are focused so much on the unique, transgressive nature of Trump himself, but what's happening is much bigger and broader than him. And I don't think we have a precedent for it in American politics uh, to, for the way that the Republican Party is showing itself willing to run through the rules of small-D democracy in order to hold power.
1: So will we ever get the old Republican Party that we once knew back? Jason, start us off.
2: Um, I am dubious that we will, um, because I think that one of the things that we're seeing and that Ron, you know, has talked about a lot actually over the years, um, is that this didn't start with Trump. Uh, you know, this has been a a fairly long-term project to kind of drain the intellectual like capacity (laughs) out of, out of, uh, you know, out, out of the party and, you know, the, the, you could see it in the early Obama years, you know, when everything was about, you know, they're going to take away, you know, your health care, you know, or, or, and, and, and like, you know, the, the, to me, one of the singular moments was, you know, take your government hands off my Medicare. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, like, it, it was a, there was an encouragement of people to rise up and challenge everything, you know, and continue to enjoy the benefits of a well run government, but like, question everything that, like, the, that, like a Black president was doing. And I think that it's hard to get that back into the bottle after you've released that, uh, you know, like those sort of strains of, of casting doubt on the very foundations of democracy and whether your opponents you know are are on the level and you know for every mitt romney or john mccain you know or or somebody like that figure like that who is like nope we still you know we're still honorable like towards our opponents they're not our enemies i mean like the, we see this a little bit with people like who are retiring <laughs> like uh greg walden and, right. and lamar lamar alexander but you know, it's tough to turn that off. It's tough to turn the passion off because it takes, it brings people to the polls and it raises money. And it also, you know, is, is rate as a ratings thing too. So it's really tough to, to say like, on one hand, we're going to be adults. And on the other hand, we're going to like basically encourage people to get out their pitchforks and and torches. Yeah.
1: What do you think, Sabrina? And the question is, which Jason sort of got to, if the George Bush or Ronald Reagan or whatever you want to call it, establishment Republican Party were to reemerge, who's their leader?
0: They don't have one. And <laughs> I think that's part of the problem. But look, there was a moment, and this we're in that moment right now, where the party could have tried to reclaim some sense of identity and direction because... They have a president who is refusing to acknowledge the results of the election. And this could have been a clearer opportunity to try and break away from him and say, look, it's clear that Joe Biden is now the next president of the United States. We need to move on. And instead, the overwhelming majority of Republicans in Congress have not acknowledged Joe Biden's victory. And so they've quietly even if they haven't come out and supported the president's baseless claims, they've quietly given rise to them by not speaking up, which I think was sort of that moment, right, where they, they, they had there's a fork in the road and you're deciding if you're going to keep going down the same path you've been going down over the last four years, or is it time to turn a corner? And and I think that, that is, this is very much a reflection of Trump's dominance over the party, his influence, a lot of that has to do with the fact that roughly seven million more people showed up at the polls to vote for him, and so they, the takeaway appears to be that he is such a uh, an accelerant for turnout with, within the Republican base or people who are disaffected voters, and and that and and so they they've sort of embraced Trumpism for the foreseeable future. It's also telling that you know some of them have already said that if he. Runs again in 2024, the field is his for the taking. Yeah. Uh, So, 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 and even those who are angling to be the next leader of the party, whether it's Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or Tom Cotton, uh, Josh Hawley, a lot of these people have fashioned themselves uh, in in the image of Trump, or they've tried to remake themselves in the image of Trump. So, I think that tells you a lot if you about where the party is headed. And I, I I don't know who the establishment alternative is because it's not clear that the establishment continues to exist.
1: Right. Yes. So, David, uh, I think Sabrina makes a good point. This was an opportunity for, uh, I don't know, again, don't know what we call them, old fashioned Republicans yeah. or establishment Republicans uh, to say, OK, let's take the party back. Right. We had this aberration with Donald Trump. That's not who we are. Here's who we are. But they didn't take it. Right. They're not yeah. taking it.
3: No, I think the real question is how, how those folks react once Trump actually loses power. Will he still have mm. the ability among so many Republicans once he's out of office and really isn't the president anymore? But on the other hand, I think the party is forever changed, and it'll be a Trumpist party for decades, it just as you know, there's still residues of McCarthyism in the Republican Party, of Goldwaterism, of Reaganism. And I think Trumpism will take its place as well. It's just a question of the degree to which to which it has influence over party nominees in the future. Uh, I, think, I don't think there's any doubt Trump's going to say he's going to run in 2024. I don't know whether he will actually follow through and do it, but I, he's going to maintain the suspense for at least a year. So that tells me that he's going to continue to swing a pretty big stick in the party. He's probably the favorite for the nomination right now. And the only question in my mind is, is the degree to which future candidates uh, imitate Trump's aggressive style. Uh,
1: I cannot— resist uh, closing here. Uh, As we were speaking, Donald Trump is tweeting, what else is new? Uh, And um, maybe this is something we should have started off with, but Donald Trump just tweeted four minutes ago, quote, now it turns out that the Democrats want to pack the court with 26 justices. (laughs) All right, yeah. I don't. It's a very specific number. <laughs> yeah, very specific number, and who the hell knows where that came from?
0: We're back to court <laughs> packing.
1: <laughs> that is certainly uh, equals court packing, right? There we go. That's what we're dealing with every day here in Washington. D.C., tweets like this, trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Uh, thank you, Jason. Thank you, David. Thank you, Sabrina, for a great panel, great look back. But before we let you go, there must have been something that caught your attention. Uh, this week uh, that made you stop in your tracks and say, "Man, that's interesting. Look at that, uh, David." What was it for
3: you? <laughs> oh, I don't know. If it, I really didn't have a favorite story this week. To be perfect All honest, right? I was I was struck by the fact that we're starting to see year end review stories. You know, the time name oh, is yeah. The, and That stuff, and that, the reason I like seeing that is that I know that the end of the year, the end of this dreadful year, is quite near, and I can't.
1: Wait. <laughs> and that's good news, right? I think all of us would like to wipe 2020 off the calendar. It never existed. Forget right. it and move on as fast as as we can. Uh, that's
0: fair. Uh, how about you, Sabrina? Well, you know it's going to be related to animals. A dog story. It's I'm not working. a dog story. Oh, okay. this is actually huge. So the oh. National Zoo said on Monday that all three of its giant pandas <gasps> will be going to China at the end of 2023, according to a new agreement that they struck with Chinese officials. But that means it's a three-year extension because the agreement was set to expire, um, and and they were supposed to go back sooner. So we have these
3: mm. adult
0: giant pandas who've been the stars of Not just the National Zoo, but I think all of Washington (laughs) D.C. with us for another three years. How about the baby? How about the baby? The baby stays for the next three years as well. The four-month-old cub, uh, Uh Xiao Qiji. I I know all about them. So if you ever need to know more, (laughs) I'm your I'm your person. Now the question is: With rising tensions between Washington and Beijing, what does this mean for the future of the 50-year giant panda program? which has, of course, been a core of the work at the National Zoo. Uh, they're expressing confidence that Chinese officials will would consider sending more giant pandas to Washington in the future. If this is not a priority for the incoming administration, I don't know what is.
1: All right. There you go. Uh, we said China will be a big problem with, for Joe Biden, right? So you're, you're putting it out there. It's the panda that pandas is going to be the priority.
0: I am a single issue voter, Bill. Jason
1: Dick, <laughs> what caught your
0: attention?
2: Um, it, I unfortunately, it's kind of a sad one, uh, oh. and, and, and it's Jane Mayer's story about Diane oh, okay. Feinstein in the New Yorker and her sort of um, mental decline. I mean, the the anecdote that Mayer mm. uh, opens up with is is just really stark and something that I think that has been. Um, understood, but difficult to talk about on Capitol Hill uh, with journalists and with staff, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, the, the opening end is Feinstein asking Jack Dorsey, uh, the CEO of Twitter, a, a question uh, about, you know, how Twitter labels Trump's tweets and Dorsey answered. And then she asked the same exact question yeah. and d- is not aware that she has just asked that question. And it, and it gets into how, um, you know, it, it's dawning on it, how it dawned on Democrats and particularly Chuck Schumer, the Democrats leader in the Senate, uh, that she was not going to be able to be up to the task of being in the Judiciary Committee and also how, like, there were some fumbles with her, uh, particularly in messaging on uh, the Amy Coney Barrett nomination and, and the Kavanaugh hearings back in 2018. And it's it's just this, like, it's this incredibly sad thing. I mean, like, again, I I, I think the reason that I love covering Congress so much uh, is not because of sad stories like this, but I love covering comics because it is it really is a reflection of who we are um i mean even though it's frustrating (laughs) Mm -hmm. um the but you know Dianne Feinstein has had this storied career and, you know, was, was thrust into the spotlight in tragedy with, you know, George Moscone and, and, uh, Harvey Milk's murder, uh, in San Francisco in the seventies. And she's just this like, you know, stellar, like Senator, and now she's 87 years old and she's declining and nobody wants to talk about it and nobody knows what to do about it. And it's yeah. just, it's a really amazing story. It's a sad, sad story. Uh, I read it yesterday. Uh, well,
1: I'm going to uh, get things on a positive note again with my favorite story. <laughs> Sorry,
2: everybody. I'm <laughs> starting to bring the mood down early.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, let me leave you with this. Yes, there is a Santa Claus. And yes, there is, there are treasures, real hidden treasures. That's my favorite story of the week. I don't know uh, about all of you. I grew up, As a kid, I grew up believing in... Hidden treasures, I used to walk the beach at Fenway hoping I would find some gold coins from some Spanish galley off the that crashed off the coast or something and we heard about a treasure hunt this this week that ended up for real and this was a, it's a strange story. an antique dealer by the name of Forrest Finn out in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, actually buried a treasure chest with over a million dollars of diamonds and jewels and gold coins and cash uh, up in the Rocky Mountain somewhere. And he wrote his memoir called The Thrill of the Chase, in which he included a poem that had some clues about where this treasure chest was hidden. He did that in 2010. For the last 10 years, over 350,000 people have gone out searching for this hidden treasure, believing it was actually there somewhere. During that time, four of these people died, actually, uh, up in the mountains while they were on the searching for this treasure chest. And we learned this week that a former D.C. journalist by the name of Jack Stuff, who became a medical student, uh, spent the last two years hunting for the treasure chest, and he found it somewhere in the wilds of Wyoming. Uh, and he has claimed it, and the family has said that's the treasure chest. It's all his. He found it sometime in June of 2020, and his identity was revealed this week. Now, isn't that a great ending? That a great story, right? It uh, is, Bill. <laughs> I'm sorry. <That's> awesome. Okay, <laughs> but now here's the kicker. Mr. Steph said he's going to use the money to pay off his student loans. <laughs> I <laughs> <laughs> now that brings it right back to reality to what we're living, to what we're living with today oh my
3: god go. has not nominated an education secretary yet, so that can be there
1: <laughs> there you go all right great roundtable today Jason tick David Jackson Sabrina sticky thank you all so much and thank you everybody for listening for joining us here it's always good to have you with us uh, we leave you by reminding you please Follow the uh, advice of the CDC in planning your holiday events. Stay sane, stay safe, stay strong. Take all the precautions necessary because we want to see you back on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.